May be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Rich Top Church. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, am uh, excited to bring God's word to you. We've been working through Genesis, and we've been two weeks in, and we've learned that God is self-existent. That uh, He uh, didn't have a start. He's always been, and He always will be. And he is also self-revealing, and he reveals himself even in the way that he creates. And last week we saw him bringing light into darkness and a whole cosmos out of absolute chaos. And this word cosmos or, or universe, somewhat synonymous, this interdependent uh, unity of diverse Things. Even a university is supposed to be that, right? Um, and so you see this beautiful, functional, awe-inspiring universe or cosmos. And what we have in Genesis is the story of how that cosmos came to be, or a cosmology, if you want to use the, the technical uh, term. And as we're looking at this last week, it felt like we had made it to the grand finale. Uh, when we heard these verses from Genesis 1, verse 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And it, it seemed like this is it. It's It's made. Right? It's been separated into land and sea and sky and earth, and now we've got birds and fish and animals that are filling all these spaces that God has created. And if there had been a crowd present, I'm pretty certain there would have been a standing ovation for the work that God had done. Last January, Melanie and I got to see The Music Man on Broadway. And uh, it was really, it really fun. And it partly was fun because uh, it was uh, starred in by Hugh Jackman and um, Sutton Foster, who's an amazing Broadway actress. And um, it wasn't the last showing uh, of the, the entire Broadway musical, but it was getting close to that. And uh, they'd been doing it weeks and weeks and weeks, and it was just effortless. And they were just having fun with it. And even made a mistake or two, but they just effortlessly improv to fix the mistake. And, and they were just laughing and smiling, and everyone was just having such a blast, including the, the, you know, the audience. And we get to the last number, the, the, the 76 trombones finale, and it's amazing, and everyone's clapping, and, and then the curtain goes down, curtain comes back up. And then all the actors and actresses are coming out one by one from the smallest parts to the end where uh, the, the, the two stars are taking the bow. And I mean, the place is going nuts. And then the curtain goes down and we're all standing there. And we're really wishing <laughs> that it didn't end. And we just kind of filtered out to our hotels and homes and and just wanted more. And we even like got some cheap tickets to Out of the Woods the next day and went to watch it. And it was a much lesser musical. But um, 
Genesis feels a little bit like this way. We get to the end here, and it's amazing, and it's a standing ovation, but God's not done. God's not done. It's more like a Taylor Swift concert where she's done her surprise songs, and she's acting like it's done, but there's an encore, and it's seven songs long. (laughs) And so the encore for the creation story is human beings. This is God's greatest creation, his crowning achievement. Now, that might sound strange. You might be thinking, really? Human beings? Humans who dump radioactive water in the ocean and leach forever chemicals into the soil and glut the landfills and the seabeds with our plastic water bottles? I mean, humanity has had quite a fall, and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But their original glory... It's pretty amazing. So try to suspend judgment and enter into this text and see the glory of human beings. It's going to answer three different questions. We want to answer who is the God who is giving the glory to human beings? What is the glory that's being given to human beings? And how does that glory inform the purpose of human beings? So who's the God giving the glory? What is the glory? And How does that inform our purposes as human beings? And we really get the answers to all three of these questions, at least the start of these answers, from the very first two verses that Faye just read to us. So verse 26 of Genesis 1, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So who is this God that's creating human beings? Well, there's a little bit of of a clue here where it says, let us. This is new in the creation narrative. We haven't seen this before. What we've been seeing before is, and God said, let there be, and then there is whatever he says, let there be. But here... We see a greater display of divine intention. We see God having thoughts about what he's about to do, right? And it builds anticipation leading up to what he's about to create, this crowning achievement of his creation. This phrase also is representing God as some sort of plurality, Some sort of, maybe a community. Many scholars have weighed in on this phrase, let us, what does it mean? Some have said, well, he's talking to angels, like the heavenly hosts, or some sort of a royal we that he's using to indicate his power and sovereignty. But as as Christians, for the most part, we look at that and we say, no, this is the first little clue that God is one God and three persons. That God is this community of oneness, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And ancient readers wouldn't really have had any kind of idea about God as one God, three persons. But it does make sense that God, who's about to create human beings in community, in his image, is a God who is in community. We'll talk more about that. Next week. And I'm going to say that a lot. I'm going to say about next week a lot. Because these two creation accounts of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are complementary. 
And so we're going to set some things up this week that hopefully we'll be able to return to and get even more insight into. That next phrase in verse 28 also gives us some indications about God. Uh, it says, God blessed them and God said to them. Uh, we've talked some about this already a couple of weeks ago, but we see God blessing humans. Or another way to think about it is God is favorable towards humans. Now, he's already done this blessing thing of showing his favor toward creation as a whole. But here he's doing it in particular toward human beings. And his favor is expressed in part by speaking to human beings. We talked about this earlier. Of God is a God who uses human language, but he, who does he speak to, right? And he seems to be speaking within the Godhead, but here he's speaking to human beings beings. And this is what he does. He speaks both oral and written to human beings. And what is he speaking? We will find out here in a few verses. He is speaking commands. You say, okay, well, which, which is it? Is he speaking blessings or is he speaking commands? Yes. Yes. His commands are a blessing. He is a good God. And anything that he commands is good. It is a means of showing favor to human beings, that commanding them. And so we have this God who's a community of oneness, who's speaking words of blessing and command to human beings. So what is this God-given glory that he's giving to human beings? Well, he's creating human beings in the image of God. Humans, unlike any other creation, are made in the image of God. Certainly all of creation reveals God in some way, but nothing like a human being. This is why, in part, they're a crowning achievement of God's created order, is because they reveal God. Now, what does it mean to, to, to image God? Now, an image is something that is not the same as that something, but it is a reflection of that something, or a representation of that something. We need to think about ancient world idea around images. Um, all ancient religions used images to worship. They had statues of their god or symbolic objects that were related to their god. Uh, even parts of creation like a tree or a rock that were images that they used to worship their gods and goddesses, and that somehow these images, they believed, were mediating the invisible presence of their gods and goddesses, right? And so they make visible that which is invisible. So an example um, these days would be uh, Hinduism, still ascribes to this kind of an idea. If you've ever learned anything about Hinduism or have some of that in your background, you know that good Hindu will have a room with shelf gods, and their understanding is that those shelf gods are mediating the presence of their gods and goddesses. And if you were to ask them, is that picture or is that statue, is that your god? And they would say, no, no, of course not. But it's mediating the presence of the unseen, kind of a portal of their gods and goddesses. And so we think about this idea of imaging. And so we start to connect the dots. And so what we're saying is that seen humans 
are somehow imaging the unseen God. This is, this is part of their role in the created order, is imaging the unseen God. They themselves are not God, but they are imaging forth God. And they're doing that in part with their created body that they can say words with and they can take actions with. And that is a part of how they image forth God in the world. And this is true of every human being. Every human being. Whether they believe in God, don't believe in God, they have been given this role of imaging forth the invisible God through their visible uh, bodies. Notice that this is both men and women. It's both male and female. This was, there's no ancient creation myth that has males and females as co-image bearers, as, as being respected. The, the, the creation myths have like women as like an afterthought. And here in Genesis, it's like, no, male and female, they are both image bearers of the unseen God. Now, let's look a little deeper into this idea of imaging, right? Um, what, what, what does that mean? Why is it such a big deal? Um, what Genesis brings forth first is that it's wrong to murder them because they're created in the image of God. We'll see this later in Genesis chapter 9. This is uh, what is said to, no to Noah after the flood. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Um, this is often, the scripture is often pointed to as the institution of uh, government by God. Saying we, we have to have an institution that will protect and mitigate evil, restrain evil in the world. And what's the worst evil that the government needs to restrain? The killing of another human being. Our justice system would agree the most heinous crime in our justice system would be to kill another human being. And why is that such a heinous crime? Well, here it says because human beings are created in the image of God. There's a, a sanctity, a dignity that's assigned to them that's not assigned to any other creation in the world. And because of that, they should be protected from murder. Um, there's no sense of dignity and like inherent worth of human beings. That idea, there's no sense of that in the ancient world. None. All you care about in the ancient world is your tribe. You care about your, your gods and goddesses that are connected to your tribe. These are tribal deities. You have your little plot of land that your tribal deities are protecting for you, your tribe. There's no sense in the ancient world except for Judeo-Christian truth of there being inherent worth and dignity of human beings. I think we forget that. We forget that these ideas came from somewhere. And where they came from was this Bible that I'm holding in my hands. That all human beings have a dignity and worth. Now, that said, even though those ideas are pretty common, especially in American life, uh, we're starting to lose this sense that everyone has equal dignity and worth. We, even in our political discourse, we 
demonize our opponents, or probably better said, we dehumanize our opponents. We act more like tribes than we do human community. The, this very foundational truth of, of the, the dignity and worth of human beings is at the heart of so many other issues. I really had a hard time paring down this sermon because there's so many places I could go with this. But here's some examples. Like, why is it wrong to enslave or segregate or subjugate or discriminate against or even dismiss people because of their race? It's wrong because they're created in the image of God. Why is it wrong to consume porn or traffic people for sexual pleasure? Because dehumanizing people by turning them into products is wrong because they've been created in the image of God. Why is it wrong to kill suffering people by assisting their suicide? Because they are created in the image of God. You can't put them down like a dog or a horse. They are human beings. And yes, why is it wrong to kill an unborn baby in a mother's womb? Because that baby is an image bearer. And these are only the more controversial kinds of things that we talk about in our political discourse. There's so many other less seemingly mundane things that tie into this truth. Like, why should we be kind and generous and loving and respectful to all people, regardless of how they're behaving today? Even before we start talking about, well, we're Christ followers and we want to follow Jesus, just because they're image bearers, they are worthy of being respected, being loved. And why should we call people to be responsible for themselves, to care for themselves and for others? Well, because they're image bearers. Even if they're not Christians, there's something to this call to be responsible for yourself, for your domain. Now I'm getting into uh, the purposes here of the human being. And this is our, our third uh, third question. Third question: How does this glory of being an image bearer help us understand our purposes? So the big idea is dominion. Okay, so verse twenty-six: Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Dominion. Now, dominion sounds like dominate. And that sounds bad, right? Um, it sounds like we're saying, human beings, you can exploit this earth however you feel like. And certainly some have used these verses uh, to back up such behavior. But God uses the phrase, let them. And that indicates that we are not the ultimate authority over the earth. God is the ultimate authority over the earth, and he's letting us have a stewardship, have uh, the, 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 the authority, the delegated authority over the earth. God is the ultimate sovereign over all things. And we talked about that last week where he's like naming, you know, night and, 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 and light. Right? He's, he's naming the land and the sea. He, he has sovereignty over the universe. But now he's entrusting that sovereignty to human beings. But he still maintains that ultimate uh, sovereignty. So we could think about it that we're working for his administration. 
You notice people that work for a presidential administration. They, they say, we work at the pleasure of the president. And so meaning that they are carrying out his or her wishes. They're not carrying out their own wishes. They're working at the, at the pleasure of uh, the president. They work on behalf of, they are an ambassador of the president of the United States. And we're somewhat allergic to this idea of authority. And we sometimes try to run away from it. But you can't run away from it. Somebody is going to be in charge. Somebody is going to be in charge. Authority is always going to rear its head. And what the Bible is saying is that it it can be done in a very God-honoring way. It can be done in a way that brings good to the world. And so to some degree, we all, everyone in the room, we all have authority over something. And we have responsibility. For that something, okay. Um, the, the 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 following verses there give us a little bit of instruction about what that dominion might look like, right? Verse twenty-eight: God blessed them. God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that hold, moves on the earth." And God said, "Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of, the, of all the earth." Every tree with a seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And so we see at least two big, broad categories of this dominion. So one is procreation, and what is, I'm going to call administration. Procreation and administration. We'll talk about both of those. So procreation says, be fruitful and multiply and feel the earth. This is one of those commands that is also uh, a blessing. Now, we noticed earlier that God created male and female. And there's there's, there's, there's a, a thought behind this design. Because his thinking is that these males and females are going to get married, they're going to have sex, going to have babies, and he's going to fill the earth with image bearers. So there's going to be more and more image bearers that are going to reside on planet earth. And that this is part, not the only, but part of the purpose of the human being, is to fill the earth with image bearers. Um, Again, you can only do that through sexual union. And this is part of the design that God has given uh, human beings. And so what we're seeing here is this sort of integration of gender and marriage and sex and children. So you have male and female who can get married. And inside that marital covenant, they can have sex. And when they have sex, they have children. Right? It's all a package deal. It's all a package deal. This is part of the created order that we're seeing in Genesis 1, and we'll see it again in Genesis 2. God cares about these things. He cares about human sexuality. He designed human sexuality, and he has a vision for what that looks like. Marriage and family are a big deal to God. We see that in the Old Testament. We see it in the New uh, Old Testament example, Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, These words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Right? Talking about raising family. Not just having babies, but raising the babies. And raising the babies to actually know God and love God. We see this in the New Testament as well. Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. 
This is the first commandment and a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children into anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so you see both in the old and the new, this instruction to have babies and raise the babies to love God and to bring honor and glory to Him. Now you may be saying, I don't want to be married, or I want to be married, but I don't want to have any kids, right? And this actually comes up a lot in premarital counseling conversations, and I've had many premarital counseling conversations, where you have one person who's like, I want kids, the other person's like, I don't want kids, and I remind them that we wouldn't even be having this conversation if it wasn't for the technology of birth control, that in the ancient world, if you get married, have sex, guess what? You're going to have kids. It's a package deal, part of the, des- the design that God is putting forth here in the created order. Now, I'm not saying birth control is evil, et cetera, et cetera. We can have that conversation later. I don't have time to hit that in, in this particular sermon. But it is something I want you to be thinking about. Like, wow, that's true in the ancient world. This isn't even a conversation. Right? If you're married and you have sex, you're going to have, most likely, you're going to have kids. This is a package deal. This is part of the design that God has. And it's interesting now, this, this like vision of a kid-free life, right? I don't, I don't want to have kids. Oh, man. You know, they cost a lot of money. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, There's a lot of emotional investment. Yeah, you're, you're true. You're going to sleep a lot less. You, there's a thousand things you could, you could have bought that you didn't buy because you have kids, right? Your house is going to be smaller. Your, 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 your vehicles are going to be older because you have kids. But you're not going to get this guy, this next pick right here. This is my first grandchild. This is Jackson Robert, and uh, he's one month old, and he's awesome. He's awesome. And he's, he's not just the only part of the story, right? The next picture here is our family. And we have three kids, and the oldest is, is married there, Corey and Rebecca, and they are the parents of uh, Jackson. And this has been the hardest thing that I've ever done, is trying to raise kids. And honestly, my wife worked way harder than I did, and it was still hard. But I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for it. The, the value of these relationships is far and away greater than any trip to Italy I could have taken or any Tesla I could have driven or whatever, right? It is so rich. It is so valuable. And we've felt that this was a calling for us, like having these babies and raising these babies to to love God and to bring glory and honor to God. Now, does that mean that every obedient Christian has to get married? No, of course not. Apostle Paul comes to mind. Jesus, you know, comes to mind. Uh, There is a God-given call of singleness. You can go take a look at it. Jesus mentions it in Matthew 19. Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, And there's a glory to this. There's a glory to the calling of singleness and the freedom that you're given to participate in the gospel ministry, right? And it's good. It's good. Um, But it's something that is... Uh, a calling, just like being married, having a family, is a calling, and it's part of purposes of human beings that God has for us. 
Now, the other big, broad category I'm calling administration, right? And what, again, an administrator doesn't have ultimate authority. They've been, they've been delegated authority, but they have responsibility for something that they've been entrusted, right? And so this is us. This is us on planet Earth. We're not the ultimate authority, but we've been entrusted with authority over uh, the Earth. And we see this early on where uh, God and Adam next, in the next chapter will be naming the animals, right? I mean, God named, you know, day and night and land and sea and these, these kinds of things. He's obviously the ultimate sovereign, but he gets to the animals and he's like, you want to do this, Adam? Like, what, what's that? And I'm sure Adam was like, can't you figure out a name for this porcupine? I mean, what's the big deal? But he's, he's showing him, like, you're an administrator here, right? You, you have authority. I'm entrusting you with this authority. To, to rule uh, over the, the creation. And then Adam and Eve were given the administration in the Garden of Eden to care for it. Right? And so this is kind of the first job that human beings have is to, to take care of the garden. But, but administrating your domain and you all, everyone in here, you have a domain, a dominion to reign over. That dominion could include your dorm room, could be your apartment, your house, could be your bank account. Right? Your friendships, your studies, um, whatever domain your job gives you, if you are out working, students you're teaching, concrete you're testing, people you're providing emergency medicine for, energy production products that you're supervising, windows you're cleaning, food you're serving, investments you're managing, all of these are ways of administrating what God has entrusted to you. They are your domain. And sometimes these kind of activities are looked at as less sacred or less important. Nothing can be further from the truth. Martin Luther called these vocations, as in their callings from God. And they are sacred. And they have dignity and worth. And have been entrusted to each one of us. Uh, Paul writes in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. And so he's letting him know, like, like, okay, you're sweeping a floor or you're managing investments or whatever. You're not just working for a paycheck. You're not just working for some person. You're working for God. It's a calling. Everything from the dishes in the sink to your longtime career are something that you're doing to rule over your dominion. And we get to the end of this idea of human beings having dominion over uh, the cosmos, and then you have God's final declaration, verse 31 of Genesis 1. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So we get to the very end of the, of the cosmology, where he looks at the interconnected cosmos of galaxies and planetary systems and atmospheres and ecosystems and massive taxonomies of all kinds of interdependent kinds of organisms. And it's not until he gets to human beings that are given dominion over this great cosmos that he says, now this is very good. And this is God's original design. This is God's original vision. For it. Now, you may be saying, yeah, that sounds great, 
But we live in a really messed up world. And people are exploiting this world. Uh, They are confused about sexuality. People are working for the weekend, or they're rejecting work altogether, or they're idolizing work. Like, this place is a total wreck. But we need to see the original design. (laughs) We do. We need to get back to this Genesis 1 and 2 to see the original design before it fell, which we will get to that in a couple of weeks. And as we look at that, we can start to see how beautiful it is. And from a Christian perspective, realize that God has a comprehensive plan to return it to that beauty, to return it to that functionality. And that's coming through Jesus. This, this, this is the, 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 how comprehensive the gospel, the good news of what Christ is accomplishing at the cross, this is how comprehensive it is. That it's, it's going to take a whole cosmos and renew it and recreate it. And that includes us. That includes us. As I'm look, working my way through this Genesis 1, I'm looking at, thinking about Ephesians 2 and 8 through 10, and, and Paul writes this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so what you see in, in that, those couple of verses there is not, not only has God saved us from the, 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 the wrath that we deserve because of our sin, and he's done that by grace, through faith, but he's also saved us to something. He's recreating us in Christ Jesus. He's saying we are God's workmanship, God's poema, right, where we get our word poem. And it's a masterpiece that he's working out by gospel grace. Each one of you, he's working out that masterpiece by his grace. Now, as Christ followers, we have an additional piece added to our dominion. And we see this in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came and said to them, talking to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You can see some of those similar themes, right? Jesus saying, I got all authority in heaven and earth. And now I'm entrusting you to to administrate this grace that I've bought and paid for on the cross. And to, to, to share that good news with people and then help people walk in that good news, walk in that grace, as in be disciples of Jesus. And so we get to participate in this ongoing renewal of the world. And, and the, the blazing center of it is this making of disciples, seeing people come to faith in Jesus and then learn what it means to follow Jesus. So you hear us talking about discipleship. We're like, oh, discipleship, that sounds kind of churchy and maybe boring. And No, we're talking about something in cosmic proportions, right? God is calling men and women to himself. He's redeeming them. And then he, he's, he's helping them through the church to teach them how to walk this out as a new workmanship in Christ. So that's a lot. Here's two 
little questions that you can be thinking about to apply this, uh, these ideas. So one is, how does this truth about human beings being image bearers, how does that affect the way I think about myself? How does that affect the way that I think about other people? Okay, this is a, that's some really practical outworkings. How does this idea that, that I'm an image bearer and that everyone else is an image bearer of God, how does that affect the way that I think about myself and how does it affect the way that I think about other people? Here's, here's a little, um, little, little schematic here that might help you do this. So this is, we, we're, we are human beings, right? We're, we're, we're related to animals. Like we have some similarities, but we are different. We've been talking about this this whole sermon. We are in the image of God, but we're not God, right? And so when we think of ourselves too highly and we push ourselves up into the divine category, we're, we're, we're not thinking rightly about ourselves. Or if we push ourselves down in the animal category and we're thinking too lowly of ourselves, right? We do the same thing with people. If, if we idolize people, we push them into the divine category and it totally sabotages our relationships. Or if we dehumanize people, we, we totally sabotage our relationships and we don't honor God and it is not good for people. And so this... Uh, getting, getting a good sense of what is a human being according to Genesis uh, is going to renew our minds in regards to how we think about ourselves and how we think about others. The second thing I want you to, to, to walk out of here with um, is what is my domain? What is my domain? And how do I administrate it? What is my domain? You all have a domain. Is, is it... Um, you know, your dorm room, <laughs> is it your apartment, is it your degree plan, your job? What is it? Is it your neighborhood, your relationships? We all have it, and it's ever-changing, right? It's ever-changing. But this has been entrusted to you by God, right? And you've been asked to uh, administrate that. Not only are you, is your domain things outside yourself, but your own body. That's part of your domain, and so how you're administrating that, taking care of your body, how you're stewarding your sexuality, all of that is part of this call to uh, steward, to manage, to administrate. And then how are you part of this redemptive plan that God is carrying out through his church of making disciples who make disciples? All this is part of this domain question. And so if you, if you want to talk more about those things of, uh, the idea of image bearing and how does that affect the way we think, and then also the domain question. Um, we'll be eating tacos and drinking some really good cold brew at Lazarus after the service, and uh, we can talk talk about it as long as you want. Um, and because uh, these are these are deep deep questions, so let's let's think about what the, how the cross uh, applies to this. Because as we said earlier. Um, this, this world's a mess. It's one thing to look at Genesis and go, that's amazing. <laughs> but then look at the world as it is, and our own selves as it is, right? But be reminded that God became a human being, right? He, he came down into this mess of a creation. Well, not just to walk around and say hi, all, all that, that would have been pretty amazing just in and of itself, but to die in our place. To, to experience the ultimate decreation of death in order to bring about a recreation 
by grace given to us at the cross. So we're reminded of that every time we come to this table, that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The one who had created bodies was going to allow his body to be broken in order to bring about that recreation. And he took the cup, and in the same way, he he blessed it, he thanked God for it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. So letting them know, I'm not just saving individuals, but I'm saving a covenant community. I want a church that's going to be a glimpse of the world to come. And so we get to be a, a visible, uh, image-bearing, not just individuals, but community where people can see the invisible in this visible. Are we ever going to be perfect at that? No, but we are going to be in an ongoing transformation by gospel grace, and people from the world are going to get to see in and see a glimpse of that which is invisible. So I'm going to bless this, and, uh, and then we'll take communion. God, thank you for the good news. Thank you that uh, we not only get to see how beautiful and awe-inspiring are your creation and your vision for that creation, your purpose for that creation, but we also have a remedy for all the decreation that's occurred in this world. And so we pray, Lord, you would uh, just encourage our hearts. Lord, we're experiencing discouragement in our own souls, in our own relationships, and even our maybe our just messy room. We're just... We need you to come and give us grace to, to bring about order from our chaos. And we're just so grateful for what you've paid in order to forgive us of that, but also to uh, recreate us as your workmanship in Christ Jesus. And I pray all these things in his name. Amen. So if you have